Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 186th episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms of Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. The Dial Up the Dream Book Club Plus is off to a great start with a wonderful group of like-minded moms. Book Club Plus is officially closed, but you can still order my best-selling book, Dial Up the Dream, wherever books are sold. You can listen to it in your car, on a walk, or for you old-school moms, you can even read it. Again, this book is for moms who have daughters who are junior or senior in high school all the way up to 25, and I guide you through those ambiguous mothering years. Remember, since your daughter's brain or your son's brain is not fully developed till age 25, they are not going to become adults seamlessly. They are still primed to make really impulsive decisions. There is a maturity gap. I wrote this book because there was a gap in the parenting literature, and no one was addressing this specific time based on the neuroscience and how that impacts you and your daughter. I was wondering if there are any moms out there today who spend a significant time worrying about all things, but especially your kids. Anxiety is sneaky and gets inside your head. It disguises itself as problem solving and that you're doing something productive, like if you worry, you're being a good mom and that you're going to prevent something terrible from happening. When you're worried, it feels like it's absolutely true, even though it hasn't happened yet. To talk about this, I brought in a knowledgeable guest. Lynn Lyons, L-I-C-S-W, has been a psychotherapist for 25 years and specializes in treating anxious children, teens, and their parents with a special interest in interrupting the generational pattern of worry in families. Lynn has a podcast called Fluster Clucks, where she helps parents understand how to manage anxiety. Katie Couric has also interviewed Lynn, and she has been featured in Psychology Today, the New York Times, NPR, and Reader's Digest. Her new book, The Anxiety Audit, which we will discuss, offers an eye-opening look at the seven sneaky ways that anxiety and worry weave their way into our families, our friendships, and our jobs, and provides actionable steps to reverse the cycle and reclaim our emotional well-being. So welcome, Lynn Lyons. Thank you for having me. Yes, no, we're going to have an amazing conversation. So the question I ask all my moms is, are you a mom and what are the ages of your kids? I am a mom and my I have two boys. Well, they're not boys anymore. I keep saying boys. They're young men. So one is 22. He just graduated from college in the spring and the other is 24. 
My older son is 24. He graduated from college in June of 2020. So that was interesting. Yeah. And they're both wow. they're both off. They came home during COVID, of course, as you can imagine. And they were here for a while, which I loved. And they are both just this fall off in their own apartments, in their own lives, out of, in their own states. Yeah. So I've launched them. Okay. So are they close? Are they like on to the other side of the country? No, no, they're both still in New England. So I'm in New Hampshire and one son is in Cambridge, Mass. So he's about an hour away. And the other one is in Portland, Maine. And so he's about an hour and a half away. Oh, I think that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I haven't seen them very much, but I know I can if I want to. So that feels pretty good. Yes. So you have a new book coming out in two weeks Mm -hmm. or well, depending on when people are listening to this podcast, but it's called the Anxiety Audit. Seven Sneaky Ways Anxiety Takes Hold and How to Escape Them. Yes. So why did you write that book? I wrote that book. So the other books that I've written have all been focused on children and parenting. And certainly, you know, because you're a therapist that works with families and parents, I really saw, as I've always seen, which is why we wrote Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, I wrote that with Reed Wilson, that it is enormously hard to teach your kids the skills you want to teach them if you aren't aware of your own patterns. And I was, you know, talking a lot to parents. I do a lot of parent presentations. And I thought I just needed to write a book about our own anxious patterns and how they show up. And certainly after all that we've been through with this pandemic, I really wanted to demystify a lot of the things that people think they know about anxiety and to really normalize it, to say, look, this this is the way this thing shows up. And when we pay attention to it and when we learn about it, not only does it help ourselves, our relationships, it certainly helps our parenting. So I thought, I'm just going to talk directly to the adults for once, which I do all the time in my practice, but not in my books. So I decided I would write this one. Yeah, no, it's super helpful. And I think it's super helpful for the moms who are listening. There's plenty of material to be anxious about raising teens. Um, Yeah, there's a limitless (laughs) supply, we might say. (laughs) All right. So you talk about seven sneaky ways that anxiety weaves into our lives. And so, first of all, it's true. Like, I think if we really were fully aware, oh, here comes anxiety, But it just sneaks its way in there. Yeah. And so you say the first sneaky pattern is how repetitive negative thinking disguises itself as problem solving. Yes. I had a mom once. She was kind of joking, but kind of not. And she said, it's my job to worry 24-7. And I kind of feel if I worry, then nothing bad will happen to my kids. Right. Yeah, I've heard that so many times as well. It's interesting. And even traveling around the country and being in different places, I was at this amazing school in Brooklyn a few years ago, and they were telling me at this school that really a big part of their parenting culture was that worrying was the way that you showed love. So not only only is worrying how you prevent bad things from happening, but it's also how you show that you are an engaged parent, a loving parent, a caring parent. And a lot of times parents think, if something happens to my child, and maybe they even think, I I can't prevent all the things from happening from my child that can happen to my child. But if something happens to my child and I haven't worried about that thing, 
then that makes it even worse. If I, right. so it's sort of like saying you, you give your child, they get their driver's license. And we all know that young drivers are very likely to have a fender bender or some sort of accident. We sort of know that if it happens and we didn't worry about it, we're terrible parents. So the fretting and the imagining is sort of a way to kind of alleviate some of our mommy guilt, which is such a, I mean, it's, it's so true. And I think it's so universal and it's so painful to just spend your life worrying and imagining all these horrible things happening. What I really love about your book is that you name things that we feel. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. If like, if a mother did not worry, they would really feel bad if something happened. Yeah. And that's actually crazy when you say that out loud. But it's true, isn't it? Because if you yeah. say, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I worried about this happening. I'm so upset that this happened. But if you were to say, I didn't worry about her staying home alone. No, I no didn't. No, didn't bother me at all. People would be like, what's wrong with you? It really is like worrying as a way that we, you know, we want to show our worry card when we're, when we're stepping out into her, like, I'm a worried parent. Oh it's my gosh. Yeah. So, so yeah. true. Mm-hmm. All right. So for the moms listening, what's the difference between worrying and ruminating? So worrying, and these are, you know, these are just the way that other people define them, right? Because there's, there's a lot of research on worry and a lot of research on ruminating. Ruminating tends to go to the past. So if you are a ruminator, you're going over and over something that already happened. So you said the wrong thing. You know, the shoulda, woulda, coulda, we call it in my family. Um, oh, if only I did this. So you're thinking about, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or why did I make that decision, or I shouldn't have bought that refrigerator, I should have bought that refrigerator. And when people are good ruminators, they can go way far back and yet Mm. hang on to things. And you carry, ruminating is really connected to regret, which is also a lousy thing to feel. Regret is incredibly painful and toxic for us to carry around. Worry, generally, tends to move into the future. So worry is worrying about what's going to happen. So ruminating is kind of the if only, and worry is the what if. So when you worry, now, do people use these terms interchangeably? Sure. Does it matter? Not all that much. Both of these patterns are you sort of having a meeting inside with that part of you that says, oh, I made the wrong decision, or I'm going to make the wrong decision, or, and I'm going to go inside and I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit I'm just going to stew in the things that didn't go well or won't go well. And it's not, it it, oftentimes it's not even the reality of the situation. It's just what you're creating as you're thinking about it. So it's usually, it's the direction that we talk about it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. I mean, I think we would all be so surprised if someone could count the minutes that we ruminate and worry in a day. Mm -hmm. I think we would be shocked. I think we would be shocked too. I do. And this is why, just so you, as you say that, is that I don't have people keep worry journals or, you know, have them write down what their worries are because that's all you would do. If somebody (laughs) is listening and they're the mom of a 13 year old and I say, mom, what I want you to do is I want you to keep track of everything that you worry about. And then they would come in and you'd say, what do they worry about? And they would say everything all the time. Because it's just a part of being a parent. It's part of being a human being. So we don't really want to pay that much attention to all of these worries and take them so seriously. We want to be able to differentiate between what do we pay attention to and what do we let go of. 
but it really is to, to give yourself permission as a parent to say, you know what, worries are going to pop up. Of course, they're going to pop up. I know that's a part of being a parent. It's how much time and energy and thought and investigation and inquiry and analysis that we give to these worries that make them so time consuming. Yes, yes. So what can you do if you have what you call RNTs, the repetitive negative thinking? Mm -hmm. Can you just say, I'm just not going to think about it? Or what can a mom do? I wish that I could say or that you could say to all of our clients and to ourselves, to be honest, just don't think about it. Right. I mean, wouldn't our jobs be so easy? Somebody, somebody comes into your office and they're like, I'm so worried about my child getting into college or to work. And you would say, Well, don't think that. Uh-huh. And then like, you'd be like, oh, yeah. Complete, that's helpful advice. I just have to not think that. Right. So, so the interesting thing about worry is that the more we try and get rid of it, the stronger it gets. Because our brains, when we say, Don't think about that, if I said to you, Don't think about, what you're having for dinner, or don't think about a green zebra, right? Psh, up it pops. So the trick is, instead of saying, I'm not going to think about that, I want people to recognize the quality of their thinking, and what deserves their attention, and what really is just sort of background noise or the cloud floating through your brain, being able to say, of course, I'm going to have those worries. I'm going to let it pop up. I'm going to turn to, you know, I like to externalize the worry and give it a name. Mine is named Edith Ethel, hyphenated. <laughs> so I'm going to turn to my worry and say, hey, thanks for sharing. Or, you know what, that's what you always say. Or, of course, that's what my worry says. Instead of saying, I can't think this. I can't think this. That's when we start using distraction. That's when we start using other elimination strategies. It's okay to have the thoughts. We just don't want your worry to be your life coach. We don't want your worry to be your companion. We don't want you to, I don't want you to co-parent with your worry. It's going to be there. Nice to see you. Yeah. Yes. And you talk about action, how important action is. Yeah. Yeah. Because worry wants you to stop what you're doing, sit down, be in bed, wherever you happen to be. It wants to pull you inside. This is what we have to remember that both anxiety and depression our internalizing disorders. We do the work on the inside. So when you are taking action, then you're problem solving, right? So if you're worried, I had to fly to Florida on this past Friday, which if people are listening to this later, there was a hurricane in Florida <laughs> on Wednesday. And I had to figure out what I was going to do. We had to take action. So I had four flights booked. One of them was going to go. I hoped, I had to take action. Taking action, problem solving, thinking about what are the steps that I need to take, not to avoid, not always to prevent, but what are the steps I need to take? That's not worrying. That's not ruminating. That's problem solving. It's really important that parents know the difference between, oh, I'm just going to sit here and fret and talk about this and worry about this and tell this story over and over again and go over the details and lie in bed and imagine terrible things happening. That's not taking action. Yes. If you've got to get somewhere, take action. If there's a problem to solve, think about what you're going to do. But worry and anxiety and it's pal depression, they're not into action. 
They would just prefer that you sit there and continue to think and ruminate and go over and over and over and over. A very important distinction to make. Yeah. Why that's sneaky is because all that ruminating, all that worrying feels like we're taking action. And you really made that clear that it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because when I talk to people about therapy, right? I'm a therapist, you're a therapist. One of the misconceptions, one of the myths is that thinking more and talking about something more is the way out of it. So a lot of people think that when I'm anxious, I need to think more. I need to analyze more. I need to, if only I can think my way out of this problem, if only I can make the connection, if only I can get to the root of it, if only I can figure it out. And what we know about anxiety is that thinking too much is ruminating, is ruminating. So it's an interesting thing. When I talk to people in therapy and I say, you know, you're not going to think your way out of this. You're a really great thinker. But right now, that's hindering you. That's sometimes very surprising to people, right? No, absolutely. Very, very surprising. All right. So a second sneaky pattern is how catastrophic thinking makes the world a dangerous place and demands that you react accordingly. So what is catastrophic thinking? So catastrophic thinking is closely related to repetitive negative thinking. So, you know, they hang out. I think they probably, you know, they, they probably belong to the same gym. Maybe they you know, have talked <laughs> together on a regular basis. Catastrophic thinking is when you imagine the worst possible outcome. And you think, just like the worrier we are talking about, if I worry about this, if I can conjure up every horrible thing that might happen, then that will be protective then I will be doing my job as a parent. I think I tell this story in the book, a family that came in and we were talking about vacations and we were talking about catastrophic thinking and they started laughing. It was a mom and a daughter. The daughter was probably like about 16 or 17. And they said, we're catastrophic packers. Every time we go on vacation, we we don't pack for fun and sun. We pack for diarrhea, and Lyme disease and, you know, the flu, we pack for catastrophes. When, when, you, when you make yourself, when you subject yourself to these movies of the catastrophic outcome, right? Again, what a horrible way to parent that you're constantly imagining bad things happening when they're not happening. Yes. So the other thing about catastrophic thinking and catastrophic parenting is that catastrophic parents tend to share their catastrophic fears with their kids. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, I need you to pay attention when you cross the street, which is a perfectly fine instruction that, you know, all the safety instructions, you know, wear your helmet when you ride your bike. I'm going to leave you alone. Don't open the door. If I'm here by yourself, et cetera, et cetera. But then the catastrophic parent says, and let me tell you why. And then they go through all the reasons why it's important for them to listen to the safety instructions. So what you're doing is you're scaring your child into avoidance and you're getting in the way of them assessing reasonable risk because you are inviting them into your fearful world. So do we give safety instructions to kids? Sure. Do catastrophic thoughts pop up all the time? Yes, I have. A 22-year-old and a 24-year-old. 
They were 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. <laughs> I know this territory well. But you want to recognize, again, it's not problem solving. And it really is torture for yourself. We don't have to think about those things. Because, you know, truthfully, when they do happen, they still feel terrible. And oftentimes we have to figure out how to handle them. I say to clients all the time, never, I've been doing this job for 32 years, never has somebody said to me, you know, say, say you're worried about getting cancer. Nobody has ever come into me and said, you know what, last week I was diagnosed with cancer. I go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And then they say, yeah, but you know what? I worried about it for 15 years. So today, easy peasy, not a problem. All that worry <laughs> and all that catastrophizing made this day a breeze. Nobody <laughs> ever said that to me. So there's no need to practice the bad things. There's no need to watch the movie about the bad things. Because when the bad things happen, you'll deal with the bad things. But that's what catastrophizers do. Oh, so much about this. So yeah, it seems like, catastrophizing is preparing you mm -hmm. and that then you'll be prepared. And you're so right. You're just, you're not prepared. Yeah. Ever. Not prepared. Even if you think you're prepared, when it happens, you're not prepared. And here's the interesting thing for a lot of the parents that I work with that are really anxious, it's actually pretty, I don't, I wouldn't say surprising because at this point it's happened so often, but when a bad thing does happen, they're actually very capable of managing it. And the catastrophizing that they've done, you know, worry has a, a tagline and it's blah, 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 whatever the content is, and you can't handle it. And I have found that there are many people who are really anxious people. They really worry a lot. But then when, when the rubber hits the road, when they need to take care of some sort of crisis or emergency, they do it. They get it done. They know what to do because they're taking action. It's all of that inaction, all of that imagining, all of that mental torture that gets in the way. They're actually very skilled when they have to do something. Oh, yeah. that's such a good point. So if a mom tends to be a catastrophizer, like what can she do? She cannot do that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, so one of the things that I think is really helpful, I'm so in support of transparency because my goal is always to interrupt these generational patterns. Say you've got a mom who's a catastrophizer and she should tell her, particularly if she's got tweens and teens, she should say to them, you know what? I recognize that I'm a catastrophizer. Now the kids are going to say like, yeah, duh, mom, we know that. Like, yeah, I'm owning it, right? I'm owning it. I'm owning it. And I want you guys to call me out when they do that. When I do that, I want, when you hear, and again, pull it out. Like we used to call my mom, Bonnie Doom, my ex-Irish Catholic mother, Kathleen, <laughs> which I wrote about in the book. We call her Bonnie Doom because she's much better now, but give your kids permission to call you out on that pattern to say, you know, say you, you name your catastrophizer Phyllis, right? So they go, oh, mom, Phyllis is in the house, right? Oh, hi, Phyllis. Phyllis is going to come and wreck our good time. The reason that we don't want to catastrophize is because catastrophic parents limit a few things. One, the ability to assess reasonable risk. They limit the autonomy, the development of autonomy and mastery in their kids. It gets in the way of independent problem solving. So if you tend to do this, just tell your kids you're working on it and ask them for help. Now, this means in the moment when you are catastrophizing and you really feel like this is an important thing for you to do and they call you out, the first response you're going to have is that you're going to feel defensive. Oh, I am. Yeah. 
right? I am not doing that. You know, I, I am taking care of you. I am being a responsible parent. How dare you? <laughs> you've got to resist that impulse and you've got to take a beat or two, take a breath or two and be like, okay, thank you guys for pointing that out. Phyllis is very powerful. And even to talk to your kids about your parents, right? To say, you know, your grandmother and kids will be like, oh my God, Nana is such a warrior. They get it. They know it. So just be transparent about it. Don't go all or nothing. Don't say, oh, so Lynn is saying that I can't give my kids instructions about how to be careful or to watch what they're doing. They're teenagers. Their prefrontal cortex are, you know, wackadoodle do. No, no, it's okay to give them the instructions, but you don't have to go that next step and say, here's the instruction. And now here comes the, here comes the terrible movie that I want you to watch before you go out. You don't have to do that. It just gets in the way. I think it's so helpful if mom can have a sense of humor about this. So when my daughter was a freshman in high school, it was like the first time that she was going home with a friend and a mom that I'd met once. They lived close to my house, but I didn't have the mom's address Mm -mm. or her phone number. So... (laughs) you know, I've been a therapist for 28 years. And so, and I've worked in UT psychiatry and adolescence, and I've seen all that stuff. So I know every single thing I could possibly worry about. Mm -hmm. So I text her like 30 minutes. She didn't reply. I mean, I'm fine. 45 minutes. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But like somewhere between an hour and an hour and a half, I have catastrophized like 35 horrible things that could have happened to her. And so when my daughter finally answered the phone, she said, what? Which didn't help me (laughs) at that time. (laughs) And she goes, I was baking cookies with her mom. Mm. So all the things that I thought of in my head was not baking cookies. Right, that was not on the list. It wasn't on the list. Yeah, I know. So when my son, my older son went off to college and so he was driving from here to where he was and it's going across the state and, you know, it's over. It, it's not like you're getting on the highway and going, it's a over and down. So yeah. he was leaving here and it was probably on a Sunday night. And I did something that I never did before. I said, because I don't do this. I said, text me when you get there, which is not something I normally said. My thought was, I always said, when, if something bad happens, somebody will tell me, right? Okay. So I said, text me when you get there. So I had my phone next to me, which I also don't usually have. So I fall asleep at around 10. <laughs> and he would have gotten there at about 1030 based on the drive. So at about 10, I fall asleep. I wake up at 11 o'clock and I look, oh, he hasn't texted me. So I text him. Did you get there? Right. Hmm. Waiting, waiting, waiting. 11.15. Did you get there? Waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, at 11.45, he texts me back and he said, oh, sorry, mom. When I got back to my dorm, we were having Sunday night snacks. So I've been with my (laughs) friends having snacks and I didn't see your text coming. And I thought, okay, so that's why I don't do that. I I don't say text me when you get there, particularly if you're a college student and it's going to be 11 o'clock at night. It's hard to let go of that need for certainty. That's what anxiety wants. It wants to know. It wants certainty. It wants comfort. It wants information. But man, it can backfire, right? So your daughter was baking cookies and my son was eating cookies. (laughs) You were talking about Life 360. 
Mm. You want to share your thoughts about that? Yes. So I am not a fan of tracking. I don't think you should track your kids. I am not against kids having cell phones at, at a certain age. I'm all about delaying. The reason that I don't want kids to have Life360 or any other app is because I think for one, it gets in the way of teaching kids responsible communication. So if you say you have Life360 on your daughter's phone or I have it on my son's phone and you're supposed to meet your daughter and pick her up or I'm supposed to meet my son at the bus after a baseball game and pick him up. If there is some delay, if they run into traffic, if they stop at Wendy's for a hamburger, I want him to learn that it is his responsibility to responsibly communicate with me about the change in plans. If I have Life360, then I will be saying to him, little prince, I don't want to disturb your time with your friends on the bus. My device will communicate with your device, and we will make sure these devices that I show up the minute the bus comes in the parking lot so you aren't inconvenienced at all. I did not want to raise two young men who were like, yeah, no, my mom shows up just because I don't have to do anything and she's still there. So I think it gets in the way of responsible communication. So I'm not against if you say to your kid, if you change locations, if you're going to somebody else's house, text me. I want them, as I would say, not so gracefully to my son, I need you to pull your head out of your butt long enough to communicate with your mom. And so that's one big reason. The other reason is that the research about this, and when we look at the data, once parents start to track their kids, they don't stop. And parents promise all the time, when she gets to college, I'll stop. When she gets out of college, I'll stop. Once you sort of get addicted to this idea that you can know where your kids are all the time, it's really hard to let that go. And then the third reason is that we are now seeing that tracking is being used between peers and being used between boyfriend, girlfriend, 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 you know, romantic relationships. I don't like the idea that a 16-year-old girl has a 16-year-old girlfriend or boyfriend who needs to know where they are all the time. Mm -hmm. That is not the level of connection that I think is healthy. So anxiety wants certainty. Tracking apps are an attempt to make sure that anxious parents know where their kids all are all the time. It also becomes a way that an anxious child can know where their parent is all the time. And again, it just gets in the way of decision-making, autonomy, independence. It's just not a good plan. And parents will say, oh, it's, it's fine. I mean, I just need to know, right? No, when we were growing up, we didn't want our parents to know everywhere we were. And that's yes. also a really important part of adolescence. You're supposed to do things behind your parents' back. That's, how, that's a part of being a teenager. So <laughs> it's just too invasive. It's too, it feeds the anxiety beast. It feeds its need for certainty. And it just hinders so many of the important developmental things that I want kids to learn. Yeah. yeah. For a brief time when my daughter was out of the house, she's probably 19. Mm -hmm. She had shared her location with me. Mm -hmm. It's so addicting. I know. It's so addicting. I, Lordy, she finally figured that out and like cut me off, which is a good thing. Yeah. But yeah, like, oh, I wonder what she's doing now. I wonder what she's doing now. So yeah, yeah it is. Addiction is a good word for that. 
Well, because it, it absolutely gives you this <laughs> little pang of satisfaction, right? To know where they are, that you can, a guy came up to me, I was talking at my alma mater actually. And so a grown up man, you know, there with his college kids came up and I, cause I was talking about, if you're here as a parent at fall weekend for your kid at college and you're tracking your kid, I'm telling you, stop right now. Everybody, we're going to take it. Let's take it off our phone. <laughs> he came up to see me and he said, you know, my dad tracks me. He's, you know, 51, 52 years old. He said, my dad tracks me. And he said, I recently got diagnosed with high blood pressure. And I was eating, the family was eating at a Chinese restaurant. And I start getting these texts from my dad. And my dad is looking at the tracker and seeing I'm eating at a Chinese restaurant. And he's texting me saying, you have high blood pressure. Are you here at a Chinese restaurant? That's got a lot of sodium in it. Why are you? He says, here I am, 51 years old. And my dad is watching what I'm eating. So wow. it, just, it just becomes this addictive, invasive, incapacitating thing that feels good. I get it. I mean, I'll tell you, I get a lot of blowback from my position on tracking apps. You know, you have no idea. I go, well, actually, you know, I do. But yeah, <laughs> I am not a fan. Not a fan. Yeah. So I want to go back to the catastrophic thinking. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time one of my clients was planning this like dream vacation. Mm -hmm. It was somewhere in the Bahamas and they were going to sail from island to island. And my imagination was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is going to be the most amazing vacation <laughs> ever. Yeah. But all this mom could think about were all the things that could go wrong. Mm -hmm. So I know you say that that catastrophic thinking is a joy killer. Yeah, you cannot be present in the moment if you are watching the scary movie the whole time. So it, it is a joy killer, just like the catastrophic Packers, right? They weren't thinking about the wonderful stuff that they were going to do on the vacation. They were thinking about all the things that could go wrong. It's a joy killer. It's a connection killer, which is a really important thing to remember about yeah. all patterns yeah. is they bring you inside. They inhibit your ability to connect, to be present in the moment, to experience joy because they're predicting. I mean, think like people who are catastrophic thinkers. I said, what if you had somebody who just followed you around all day and said, you know what? You could crack your head open on that sidewalk. That steak you're enjoying right now, you know, lodged, right? Dead. You could be dead. <laughs> you know that, that soccer game that your kid is playing in? Concussion. <laughs> if you had somebody walking around with you all the time, it would drive you nuts. And I've said that to some people. They'll be like, oh my God, you're describing my mother, right? This is the way that we get sucked into it without really stepping back and saying, how is this impacting my ability to experience joy, my ability to be present? my ability to connect with other people, my ability to connect with my children, and what's the impact of my constant safety chatter on them? Mm -hmm. if, for the people that are listening, if your kids think that your parenting slogan is be careful, then you gotta rethink that because there are so many other better parenting slogans to have. Be careful is not a, a slogan of joy. Right. That's, That's not, you know, we don't say go have fun. If it's be careful, be careful, be careful. 
Yeah, is a joy killer for sure. Absolutely. Oh, that's such a good point. Oh my gosh. We could talk about so many good things in this book. Okay, so the third sneaky pattern is how big conclusions and an all or nothing approach make the world smaller and harder to navigate. Couple things. Yeah. What is global thinking? And why do you say that perfectionism is the ultimate all or nothing stance? So global thinking is when you paint the world or yourself or some sort of circumstance that you're in with a broad brush. So when people are global in their thinking, they use words like nobody or never or always, right? I I always make mistakes. Nobody understands me. I'll never figure this out. And when people are global, that's one of the fast tracks into depression. If we look at the patterns that we know predict depression, Global thinking is one of those patterns. So when you're global, if you think about it, right? Remember we talked about taking action. Global is a hope suck, right? So it'll never change, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing ever gets better. Nobody will understand me. So then you're like, well, why bother? Why do I, if nothing's going to change, if I'll never figure this out, if everybody does this or that, why bother? Mm -hmm. So. We want to look at parts. We want to look at sequencing. We want to look at being able to break ourselves up into parts, right? Well, I've got a worried part, but I've also got this really adventurous part. And it allows us to move forward, to not be overwhelmed, because global language is the language of overwhelmed, to be overwhelmed by this idea that nothing is going to change no matter what I do. There was a boy in my office last night, actually, with his parents, and he tends to get global. So he goes all or nothing. And he was talking about trying to get along with his sister better. And he was lying on the floor with his head under my chair. And he said, you know what? Every single time I play with her, she's mean. And then he stopped and he said, sometimes, sometimes when I play with her, she's mean. And I said, time out. Did you just hear how this kid went from global to parts? It truly was like a moment of success. When we talk to our kids in those global terms, when we talk to ourselves in those global terms, you know, and when we look at global thinking, this is how we dehumanize other people. Everybody in that group is like this. Nobody in that group is like me. We really want to make sure that we're paying attention to that global language. And it's it comes out all the time. You know, we've all done it. Oh, I'll never get this done. You know, my kids when they were little would say, you never let us have any fun. And I would say, really, I never let you have any fun. <laughs> and then they would, all right, right now, in this minute, you are not letting me have fun. <laughs> when we're global, when we go all or nothing, We don't give ourselves the opportunity to experience all the variability, global rigidity, those big words, perfectionism is the ultimate, right? Either I get a 97 and above on my schoolwork or I'm a loser. Everything has to go well or it's a disaster. You give yourself two choices if you're a perfectionist, perfect or a disaster. When people get caught in that perfectionistic view of the world, right? So they're walking a tightrope, one wrong step and they're gonna plummet to their death. We really want to help our kids and help ourselves see the variability in things. Perfectionism, it doesn't take you to perfection. I hate to break it to you. You know, a little. I asked a little boy a long time ago, I said, are you a perfectionist? And he goes, not yet. But <laughs> perfectionism is a myth 
that somehow you can curate or create this life where everything goes perfectly. The skill we want to teach is the ability to handle things when they don't go the way we want them to go, to recognize all the variability of our experiences, of our emotions. Doesn't mean that we don't feel bad when we screw up. It doesn't mean that we don't want things to go perfectly. But if you get locked into this global way of thinking, that's the express lane to being anxious and depressed. It's not realistic and it's torturous. All of these patterns, the reason I write about all these patterns is because they all feel really lousy. They don't get you what you think they're getting you. And global thinking is one of those patterns. Yeah. I had a teen in my office and she said, well, I'm not going to sing anymore. Mm. And I said, well, why? And she goes, well, I can't sing like Taylor Swift. Mm. I think as moms, we notice all the all or nothing thinking with them, like, because it drives us crazy. Like everybody in my school is mean. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> all my teachers are, you know, unfair, whatever. Yes. yes. Um, but I think it's harder to see our own all or nothing thinking because we feel it's true. Well, all of these patterns are really good at convincing us that they're true. That defensiveness comes up that you think, well, I don't think that way or I don't look at it that way. And once you just begin to notice it, you know, mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the things that I'll have people do is I say, just go on global language alert. Just listen to how often people use global language when they're talking about something. And when somebody else is saying it and it's coming at you, just like you're saying, like you hear your daughter say that or you hear your son say that, you're like, oh, that's, a, you know, all the teachers hate me. And you say, they do not all hate you. Mm -hmm. You want to contradict it right away. Yes. You just want to notice. And what you want to do is just like this little boy did in my office, just like trained my sons to do. You don't need to contradict it when they say it. You can say, you know, what? that's a global statement. Could you perhaps say that more accurately? So then they say, oh, right now I'm very frustrated because my math teacher is being really difficult. Yes. Right. And then we can deal with the problem as it exists. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I always have coaches for myself. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of my first speaking gigs and my coach asked me, how did it go? And I said, oh, it was disastrous. <laughs> So she gave me a hard time about that for like the next year, yeah. and which was perfect. Like being able to laugh, of course it wasn't disastrous, yeah. you know, but laughing at that and then seeing how ridiculous that was like a big bucket of cold water and ice over my yeah. head. You know, it made me aware of something that I wasn't aware of. Right. When we're global with ourselves like that, you know, I say people don't come to see me when they're globally happy. Right. Nobody has come, I'm sure nobody has come to see you and say, you know, my life is going so fabulous and I just don't know what to do. I'm happy all the time. Help, help. When you're global, generally we look at it as a in a negative way. And it really just is a way to beat up on yourself. Yeah. Globally hard on yourself, right? I'm a loser. Nothing I do works out. I'll never figure this out. Such a harshly critical way to look at yourself. Yes, we yes. Wanna, we really want to make sure that we're not modeling that for our kids because, you know, anxiety runs in families, but there's no anxiety gene. And it's interesting, you know, we're talking a lot about adolescence. There was a really cool study that was done by a woman named Kate Stroud. And she looked at the transmission of anxiety from moms to teenage daughters. She was looking at the transmission of depression in teenage daughters and what was the connection between moms. 
This isn't about blaming moms. It's about being aware of the patterns. And what she found was that if a mom, if a daughter was having difficulty, and let's just say she's having difficulty with her peers or whatever, if that mom supported distraction and avoidance as the coping strategies, that daughter ruminated more about the problem, got stuck in the problem more. If that mom supported problem solving and seeking social support, which is taking action, that daughter was far less likely to ruminate about the problem and move past it quicker. When we look at the impact of our patterns and what we support and teach our daughters and our sons, our teenagers, the payoff is really big. It's really big. So when we can say, gosh, I'm being global or am I modeling self-criticism or I'm, am I being catastrophic with my kids or am I supporting you know, avoidance rather than stepping in? All of these things teach our kids how to deal or not deal with problems. So it's a wonderful, to me, it's not about blaming these parents. It's about saying, and I, I'm very clear about that. This is not about parent blaming. It's about empowering them. Yes. What are the patterns that you can interrupt because it makes a difference. What a wonderful gift it is to give to your daughter to say, oh, I get global about that. Or I am sorry, I had a catastrophic reaction about that. And that's not fair because you are going to be able to handle this. That's what we want to pay attention. No, that's so good. Yeah. My first book, Dial Down the Drama, talks about powerless parenting messages. Mm -hmm. And one of them, it's my job to worry 24 seven. But we feel that that's like what we're supposed to do. And I really like your book because you're showing how these, what I call the powerless parenting messages, really leave us disempowered. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So do you have any last advice for the moms? Oh, I think probably, you know, it was funny. I was taking a walk this morning and I was talking to my sister and she's two years older than me and our kids are Together, we have six kids, the two of us. She was telling me she was at the park and she was walking her dog. And there was a little three-year-old there with his mom. And she was saying to him, you know, come on, let's get in the car. And, you know, she was just sort of looking at it nostalgically. And she said to this mom, she said, I did the very typical old lady thing. I said, (laughs) enjoy these times, right? They go by so quickly. And this mom said to her, I love the time we have together. Oh, that's wonderful. Because a lot of times when we say that to the mom of a three or four-year-old, and then my sister says she got in the car and put on her sunglasses and just bawled all the way home. But I think my advice to these parents is there's a lot of catastrophic and negative talk right now about our kids' mental health. There's a lot of information out there that I think is really scaring parents, that it's making it frightening to be a parent of a teenager And I just want everybody to know that it really does go quickly and you can enjoy your children. Parenting should not be this fearful, catastrophic, worried experience that you have. Enjoy every stage of your kids. And if you are about to move into the adolescent period of time. Ignore all those people who say, oh God, wait until she's a teenager. Oh boy, you're going to have, no. (laughs) Being the parent of a teenager is an incredibly rich and wonderful and challenging and sometimes exhausting experience. 
but soak up the moments, create moments of joy. And please don't buy into all of this catastrophic stuff that's just making parenting this scary thing. It is a wonderful thing. Our children love us and they need us. Moments of joy and connection and playfulness are just the most important thing that we can do. Yay. So where can the moms contact you and find the anxiety audit or anxious kids and anxious parents? You know, you can buy them wherever you buy books. So hop on and you can get them at Amazon or your local bookstore or whatever. My website is lynnlyons.com. So that's where I put up a lot of information. My Facebook page, which is just Lynn Lyons. If you put in Lynn Lyons anxiety or Lynn Lyons psychotherapy, you'll get to my professional page. I put up a lot of stuff out there and I'm on Instagram now because my 22 year old son told me I need to be on Instagram (laughs) and lying's anxiety. So I put out a lot of stuff and we have been doing the podcast. Gosh, we're just, I don't know how many episodes we've done, but since April of 2020, so fluster clucks. Yeah. So a lot of resources, a lot of free stuff, a lot of places to find me for sure. Okay. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much, Lynn. I so appreciate you having me on and thank you for asking me such wonderful questions that allowed me to talk about all the things I love to talk about. Yes. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting, Miles of Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dow Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.